Hello and welcome to Biting Talk, Britain's liveliest food and drink show presented by me, William Sitwell, Telegraph restaurant critic and food writer. Biting Talk is, I believe, Britain's liveliest food and drink show. And uh, stay tuned to see if you agree with me. This episode uh, is actually being recorded from Alborough, specifically from the Fisher's Gin Distillery, a beautiful distillery run by the young entrepreneur Andrew Heald. It's poised perfectly just above the shingle on Alborough Beach, overlooking the North Sea. Coming up on this edition of Biting Talk, uh, I catch up with Mark Wogan. He is the founder of Home Slice, um, a pizza company. They've been doing delivery. Um, now, that may not sound very surprising, but um, they weren't ever supposed to deliver. This was supposed to be about eating pizza in a restaurant. Mark Wogan is the son of Sir Terry. He's a wonderful man. He's looking very, very fit at 50. I'm looking forward to catching up with him. Then we catch up with Beverly Joyner. Now, Beverly was one of the finalists of this year's MasterChef, uh, the amateur contest. And I first came across her in the studios. Uh, sitting on the critics table. She did very well, did Beverly, and um, she is a very good accomplished cook. I know, I thought she was a bit of a favorite actually of Greg Wallace. She went very far in the competition. She is now teaching kids to cook with her schools out Instagram live video cooking program. So um, I'm looking forward to catching up with Beverly Joyner. And we also speak to North Yorkshire culinary talent, Tommy Banks. Tommy is from a farming family, um, he'd always thought he would be a cricketer, but health problems put pay to that. But it's uh, to our benefit because he's now the chef um, of his family-owned pub, as well as another pub um, up in Yorkshire. So we look forward to talking to Tommy Banks. And the show ends, as every show does end, on a high with the biting talk mixologist Farhad Haydari. Uh, on this episode, his two-minute cocktail is a very snazzy, shaken up, Clubland cocktail. I'm looking forward to that. But first, we head up to North Yorkshire and we say a very warm, biting talk welcome to Tommy Banks. Tommy, welcome to Biting Talk. Hello, thank you for having me. I want to talk a bit about the business at the moment, but just take us back to, to your early years because... Um, uh, you were a North Yorkshireman, born and bred. Your family were in the in the pub business, um, and I know that you joined the pub for an early uh, at an early age. Mm. But your first early love was cricket. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And and what what were you? Uh, were you a bowler? Were you a fielder? Were you a batsman? What was your strength? Or were you an all rounder? Yeah, all rounder. I mean, it's a long day if you only do one discipline, isn't it? So yeah, I like to be involved in everything. And uh, I mean, it's been great. These last few days, having the test match on on the TV, um, I've missed it a lot. And then you had an unusual affliction, which was colitis. Mm. Um, struck you down. And um, some might think that when you have a, a sort of a, a disease that attacks the, you know, the gastro center of the body, that that mm. might put you off the world of food. But I will say before I ask you about this, um, one of the most influential people of the last century in the food world was a man called Lord Walton. He was Minister for Food, and he fed Britain during the Second World War, and he had colitis. So you share your affliction with one of the great feeders of the country, a man who actually saved the nation. But wow. this didn't put you off. 
in fact, um, you still joined the, I mean, it put you off playing cricket, but didn't put mm. you off working in the food business. And you joined, you joined the Black Swan, the pub that your family owned. Mm. Yeah, I mean, ugh, colitis was, um, pardon the pun, but it was, it was a shit time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it didn't put me off. But I think, uh, so, I mean, when I, when I first uh, left school, I was 17, um, I used to love working in, in the pub because we'd have lock-ins every night and it really wasn't a serious career. Um, but I think colitis, if a, a disease can come along and do you a good hand, I think it certainly made me sort of focus. And, uh, you know, it's pretty, uh, you feel very self-conscious when you have a disease like that when you're 17, 18 years old. Uh, so it certainly made me quite driven. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make a success of myself after having to spend a bit of time unable to work and unable to play sport and do all the things that, you know, young lads like doing. Um, so, you know, yeah, it came out it had a silver lining to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, did you, had you expected to, to sort of work on the family farm, which was being, you know, it was a, you know, multi, multiple generations, five generations working on the farm. Mm. Um, something that you'd been expected to do. Was it something as a schoolboy that you'd been sort of hoisted into dragging hay bales around and mucking out cattle and stuff? <laughs> Yeah, you're always put to work on the farm. But if I'm really honest, I'd love to say yes. But if I'm really honest, I wasn't interested in doing any work whatsoever. You know, I just wanted to play cricket. I, I played football in winter. I just liked playing sport and having a good time. I had no interest whatsoever in any academia or work, to be honest. Uh, I think it's when the colitis came along and I realized I had no qualifications and I couldn't do any of the things I wanted to do. That's when I um, sort of found this love for food and spent a lot of time just, I just used to read cookbooks religiously and watch cooking TV programs and uh, kind of got the bug from that. And famously, um, the pub got a Michelin star um, mm. under the um, guidance of the chef Adam Jackson, mm. who left and you'd also been working for him for, a, for quite a time. And I suppose you, you were put there for in a, this almost invidious position of you know, being a member of the family becoming head chef and then having to defend that star that must have been a, a very nervous few months because if you'd lost it you would have I suppose been blamed for it um then that's a lot of pressure for the family to have put you know on you yeah I mean I think it was pressure put on myself as well but um having a rural business like we have things like the Michelin star especially at that time were like integral to the business so it, it kind of just felt more than an accolade I think it felt almost like you know our livelihoods depended on it so no that was there was a lot of pressure I mean having took over I didn't take a day off until the Michelin Dad came out actually uh, worked every day and uh, and I think now I look back I probably took it all a bit too seriously but I, th I think it's easy to be insecure when uh, when when you first sort of get a head chef position yeah and people do get obsessed about these sort of stars uh, yeah, uh, but as you say, and Marco Pierre White would say this, and he said it to me in the past that chefs put the pressure on themselves. You don't have to submit to the the, the rigors of the guide. No. But I, it's the idea of it's all very well having the triumph of winning one, but losing one is the piece of news that you never want to have. And now you still got that pressure because you still have to constantly retain that star. Are there? Um, you, do you feel you've got to get a second one? And, and do you wish sometimes that the Michelin men had never ever visited your <laughs> No, um, I don't think about it a lot, actually, um, which isn't 
doesn't go down very well with a lot of chefs when the you know the, the conversation turns to Michelin. But I, I really, I really don't. Um, it's interesting when you talk about the pressure. We we got this award from TripAdvisor, which is was a strange award, which was the best restaurant in the world according to TripAdvisor users. And that, in a different way, provided a lot more pressure because how on earth do you live up to, when we're a quirky little pub in the middle of nowhere, how do you live up to the expectations that came with that? So I found that a much harder thing to deal with because you had people traveling from around the world who were genuinely expecting to go to the best restaurant in the world. And, you know, it's just a subjective thing, isn't it? So I found the pressures of that more. But the mission guy, I didn't really think about it too much until the day it sort of comes out that I do feel quite nervous that day and sort of the day before but I think otherwise it's quite unhealthy to to obsess about it really. Now like uh, like so many um, businesses within the hospitality industry you started doing boxes mm. um, you've now reopened fully uh, using you know with the, with the strictures that you have to comply with but you're going to stick with your boxes. Mm. Uh, uh, are you going to put customers off if you just keep sending them food? Because these boxes are quite posh. I mean, there's several courses in them, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I hope we don't put people off. But I mean, the, 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 being frank about it, you know, Roots, our restaurant in York was 100 covers on a Saturday night. Now we can only do 52. Right. Um, yes. like 50% capacity. Um, what, do, what do we do with all the, the team that we have in place there, you know? Um, while social distancing is in place, um, We've got a lot of spare capacity to to, to make uh, the food boxes. But also, I mean, I see a market for it. I really do. Um, you know, the food boxes, they didn't really exist. You had your Hello Freshes and things like that, which is more of a recipe box. But until March, this wasn't a thing. And, you know, all the best inventions are, are made because of a necessity. We were in a situation where we couldn't feed people and we had to find a way of getting our product to market. And uh, I think going forward, there will be... I think there is a new market for food boxes. We so found you've got a sort of posh one. You've got a kind of uber posh one. Yeah. Um, if I was to order one tonight uh, for Saturday evening, a special Banksy food box, what would be in it? Um, so yeah, we have two two boxes. There's uh, the food box, which just arrives on a Friday, and you have basically a dinner for two people, three courses, Friday and Saturday night. Um, it works out about sixteen, no, seventeen pound a head for for three courses so I, I think yeah it is and you see a lot of the people with those boxes have ordered from day one where we've been doing this for 13 weeks now and we've got customers who've bought it 13 weeks in a row and they literally say if i went to um you know a, a nice supermarket or or the, the high street and bought all the ingredients it would cost me the same um so i think the food box is very much a market of people who think well wow this is just easy i don't have to do any washing up any cooking and and the great great food at good price and then the signature boxes we do a few more a bit like the restaurant dishes um so this week i mean we've got beef wellington in there which is like a death row meal for me um and we, we put a great bottle of red wine in there as well so um yeah i mean i would go signature box if you're going for the saturday night blowout but um the, the food box is a for every week and so your advice for other restaurateurs there's a message uh, uh, here talking about, you know, restaurateurs and NYC struggling. Um, given the fact that you have sort of flexed your entrepreneurial muscles, are doing the boxes, are still doing them because it, it you know, keeps your numbers up. What's your mm. advice to other, you know, owners of independent restaurants who haven't got the power and the money of banks that you might, you know, investors if you have a chain? Um, what would be your advice to those people? I definitely think... 
diversifying and, and being entrepreneurial is the way forward. It doesn't have to be what we've done, which is set up a food box company, which has been a huge amount of work. But I, I mean, I look at the, the pub in the next village to me and they were, they were, it's a really nice, quirky little pub. I love it. They've now got an app and they do takeaway for all of the village. And you'd never have seen them doing that. But actually, they've been really entrepreneurial. And, and I think that's the way you've got to look outside the box. Opening it's going to be the hardest time because, yeah, we're going to go into a recession, which is a difficult time to be a hospitality vendor. But we've chucked social distancing and um, lack of confidence in people for going out into the mix as well. And it's really the worst time, the worst cocktail you could imagine. So I think um, you've got to just, yeah, be entrepreneurial, think outside the box. Don't just open up doing what you did before because I'm not sure that I'll cut the mustard, to be really frank. Um, I think, yeah, look and see what people want. Find a different way of getting your product to, to market. And finally, if you were going to sit in the, in the restaurant tonight, in the dining room, um, little table, cheeky table for two, uh, what would you be ordering off your menu? Oh, um, just the... Uh, probably just a, one of the vegetable dishes because we've, we've got this amazing farm and probably the best year we've ever had. Like the sunshine we had at the start of the year, then all this rain has meant like the fruit is amazing. Like it's probably the tomatoes I would have. And we've got no one to serve it to. I can't even show it off and show people around. So I, I would actually go for one of the vegetable dishes. I say that we're doing a, a lobster dish, which is barbecued lobster with tomatoes. I'd have the lobster and tomato dish. Yeah, yeah. That sounds good. And I've, uh, we've been long on lobster down here in, uh, in Suffolk, I have to tell yeah. you this one. Tommy Banks, it's been fantastic uh, hooking up with you. Best of luck with the business. Best of luck with Roots as well. Um, I hope people continue to order your boxes and uh, make their lives um, even easier and um, go mad with that glut of tomatoes you've got. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Tommy. We are going to go live with my old chum, Beverly Joyner. Welcome to Biting Talk. Very nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Now, I have to say, Beverly, that because MasterChef was going on uh, during lockdown, I watched a, a great many more episodes than I usually do. As you know, I pop up on the show from time to time. In fact, we've been recording uh, professionals at the moment, which is very, very exciting, which will come out in the autumn. But... In the you know in the normal course of life, I don't get I don't get glued to the TV and manage to watch as much MasterChef. But because of lockdown, we were all at home. We watched a lot of Teddy and a lot of MasterChef, and we watched a lot of you doing very very well. And I have to tell you that you know you and Greg seem to bond. I mean, it's it seemed that the food that you were cooking just warmed the cockles of that man's hearts. And I sometimes wondered whether he was going to drag you all the way through that competition. But no, Thomas Frake pipped you. But um, yeah, Just. Just. I, I taught that boy everything he knew. <laughs> but what people might not know is you very nearly didn't make even the audition because you had a stroke, didn't you? I actually, I did actually make the audition. Uh, and I had a stroke two days later. Mm. Um, and um, fortunately, it just affected my speech. So after a couple of days in hospital and a couple of weeks of speech therapy, um, it was okay. But I didn't find out till September as to whether I was going to even be on the program. And so by then, I was sort of like really on the road to recovery. And fortunately, 
um, I was in the final group. So it gave me another five weeks to get myself totally better. Yes. And, you know, although it's not perfect, um, it didn't let me down too badly, apart from my very last cook. But there we go. That, that's just another <laughs> thing. <laughs> but and having a health scare like that, I mean, yeah. when you're in the studio and us critics who go in, we, don't, you know, we only go into the studio if we want to go and you know, see some friends after we've been filming. But it is intense and it's as real as it is when you see it on the telly. Yes. I think having, it's worse, actually. Having, yeah, worse. Having yeah. had a health scare, you, were you sort of worried about the pressure that, you know, maybe you know, this could happen again, you know, while you were kind of standing up and, and trying to cook your heart out under the, the heat of the lights and the pressure of the TV? No, I, to be honest with you, I didn't think, it, I didn't, I didn't think about it at all. Um, I was just, I mean... I'd wanted to do, to do MasterChef for so many years. I mean, I first applied probably about 15 or 14 years ago. And nothing was going to stop me doing it, I can tell you. So I, I was just, I loved every day of it. But, I mean, they, you know, there are long days. I mean, one of our days was five in the morning till one the following morning, you know, and... It's hard. MasterChef is hard. My husband was actually secretly quite delighted I didn't get into uh, the final four because, you know, he said you were tired and it was, you know, from the minute you're told that you're going to be on the programme, it is nonstop. It takes over your life completely. But, no, I wasn't concerned that I was going to have another stroke. I mean, medication sorts all that out. Yeah. But, and, and how has your life changed as, as a result? I mean, people off, you know, there are a lot of master chefs now every mm-hmm. year as quarterfinals mm-hmm. and finalists mm-hmm. who are, you know, who are trying to enter to, you know, make, make their way in the food world. Um, have, you, have you managed to find a niche? I mean, we'll talk about Instagram Live in a second and your videos, but has it, has it changed your life at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, tell you, I tell you why, because literally since lockdown, I mean, my husband and I are both uh, shielded. I think I've left the house twice since March. Right. So you don't know if people recognise you or not because you haven't been anywhere. <laughs> well, no, I went to the hairdressers last week and I had a mask on for four hours. So nobody would have known who I was anyway. No so no, it's made no difference to me at all. Beverly, tell me, because you've, um, you've been doing some wonderful new uh, cookery demos on, um, on yeah. live. Uh, tell me a bit about them. You, there was a, I think you've been doing some um, nat shows this week. Is that right? Well, I do, I do a couple of uh, demonstrations every week of, you know, try, trying to find something that you can do in 15 minutes is quite difficult. But, you know, I've, people seem to enjoy it. And then what I started this week was um, cooking with my niece. So school's out for summer. And it just it was an opportunity to try and che- teach children to cook. Obviously, lots of kids aren't going on holiday this year. And it was, it's, it's not necessarily kids' food that we're doing, but it's something that they could make their mother for lunch. Next week, we're doing uh, some burgers so the kids can put them on the barbecue. So we did nachos today with a hot cheese sauce. So, um, and it's, it's all, my niece is 11, so it's 
from that age above and obviously younger with a little bit of help from other people. So we're doing that throughout the school holidays, twice a week, just to, just to see how it goes. And our first one today has had over sort of 400 views already, which is brilliant. Uh, school's out. It's going to come out. Are you doing them weekly? We're doing it Tuesdays and Thursdays at 12 p.m. Tuesdays and Thursdays. Look at that. Beverly Joyner's not getting anywhere, but she's getting out through your telephone <laughs> twice a week. Beverly, twice a week. Such a joy to, uh, to catch up with you. Thank you, William. Coming live from somewhere, it's Mark Wogan. I've known you for a while, and I know the fact that you are almost feverishly entrepreneurial. You're a man who sort of seems to have ideas and creativity popping out of his brain at all times. Um, yeah, or, or I just can't focus on one thing for very long, one or the other. Was there ever anything within you that thought you should follow in your father Terry Wogan's footsteps and be a broadcaster because you're you know you're you're a chatty guy you something you collect it's, it's strange that it escaped you uh William I did have a uh, very brief and uh, uneventful career as a tv chef um in the in the mid 90s uh uh where you know I discovered that there was one person good at that in the family and it wasn't <laughs> Yes, and you were also, of course, a, uh, you managed a band as well. Remind us about that, just just briefly, if you would. Well, no, the extraordinary thing was, um, my brother and I had a sort of have had a business partnership in one way, shape, or form since about two thousand three, and we've done all sorts of different things. Uh, some of which have gone okay, and some of which have gone dreadfully. And we had a really great band called Riverway, who were all Elvis Costello's brothers. Um, and uh, they were a great band, but uh, like many in the music business, it never came to anything and uh, cost us quite a bit of money. Uh, so that was a success. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> um, how is Home Slice? Let's talk about that because, I mean, six branches now. Um, yeah. Uh, and this is, a, again, a business you've done with your brother and also the uh, Rye Jessup, the chef. So you, mm -hmm. have got, you have got someone who can cook on the team. Professional yes, help. Yes. But, um, I mean, you know, Home Slice still has a pulse despite lockdown. Um, we remained open doing uh, delivery and collection at our Marlebone site. And then after about eight weeks, opened up Shoreditch as well. And um, just because, you know, we put everybody on furlough because the government very kindly provided us with that particular uh, avenue and um you know but there was lots of guys of the, uh, on the team who were just bored rigid and were like please can we do something uh, so we decided look we'll, we'll open up as a delivery business and then during that period uh amy who's uh our head of operations um came up with a brilliant idea of take and bake as well which was to sort of part bake the pizzas in in the um wood-fired ovens and then wrap them up and then they can get delivered to your home right yes. uh, so that's gonna be uh nationwide soon so watch uh, this space follow at uh home slice ldn uh to see when that's going to happen but it hopefully be somewhere around the end of the month uh and then we're we're also bottling all our sources as well 
Um, I'm just going to come on to those, but I suppose firstly I would say, I suppose it's a sort of strange irony that you went into a business that was famous for delivery in order yeah. to produce a restaurant version and then ended up having to do delivery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it is, it is one of the more sort of ubiquitous things that people get delivered, but the problem with a pizza is it's always better in a restaurant so it was always from the start about taking something that everybody knew and injecting some real culinary integrity into it real focus on the quality of the ingredients and 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 just elevating it a bit and 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 you know doing the um what at the time we thought was deeply revolutionary will only serve pizza nothing else uh, apart from you know beer and wine uh, but it's it just allowed us to focus on one thing and do it really well, which we still try to do on a daily basis. Um, you, you've mentioned, I think, these sources in front of you. Yeah. Um, what Twice. are they? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we have our uh, jalapeno salsa, which goes on our four cheese. Ooh. We've got our sweet soy and truffle glaze, which is very popular on our mushroom pizza. Uh, obviously, our classic chili oil. And then our uh, truffle cream, which goes on our Wagyu beef pizza. Ooh, and uh, where so, does one purchase these things from? Uh, well, they'll be available in the uh, restaurants that are open from tomorrow. So we've got four restaurants open at the moment, Marlborough City, White City and Shoreditch. Um, and then uh, hopefully by the end of the month, they'll be available for delivery to your home nationwide. Okay. Uh, by going to uh, homeslicepizza.co.uk and ordering them. Very good, very good. Now, I mentioned your father earlier on. We talked once about him, and one of the things that I always remember that you said about him was that he was one of those people that, even though he had met virtually every famous person on the planet, there was never a picture of him with a president or a, or a, or a George Clooney on the piano at home. Um, because there are people of, of his ilk who reveled in that sort of, in the company that he kept. And I think one of the things that I really remember reading about uh, after he died was, was really how important family was to him. Mm. And, you know, and he was a very natural man. I mean, I remember Jeremy Vine saying once that he saw him getting into the lift and it was about two minutes before he was going to go on air and present his show. And, you know, he was, he, he was sort of permanently unflustered and natural. And that must be very refreshing to come from a home like that, where it was about family and he really did park his life and his job at, at the door. Yeah, no, he, he, he did never bring his work home. In fact, he never, ever watched himself or listened to himself either. Because in hard since there was a time when he was on TV every night. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was live, so it would have been difficult for him to do that. Yes. But, but, but no, he didn't come home and then watch a recording of it and analyse his performance. It was like, you know, he just he just did it and he hated rehearsing and he hated preparing and, you know, and I suppose that's where I, you know, get that part of me that sort of has winged it my whole life. <laughs> and and was your mother the great cook in the family or you yeah. you know we we always ate incredibly well as a family you know it was we were very lucky and um people used to say oh you know what were family favorites or whatever I, my mum never repeats 
she always cooks something different. She's always sort of trying new stuff. I mean, even now at 84, you know, she's, she's still cooking all the time. Um, you know, I have taken uh, food parcels down in lockdown like the dutiful son that I am. Um, Not pizza, maybe? Pizza uh, and truffle I- sauce. The new take-and-bake pizzas I brought down to her, but also a, a fine array of uh, fish pies and, you know, um, shepherd's pies and any other kind of pie. It's stuff that travels well, basically. Yes. So how is business at the moment? Are people tentatively going to your restaurant? Do you, do you um, find the nervousness among the customers? I've noticed that, on the whole, people want to sit outside, um, mainly because it's nice, but also I think they feel more relaxed outside. Um and, you know, business isn't what it was, but I think it's really important to sort of do everything you can to stay in the game and keep trading as, as much as you can. Um, it's, you know, it's, you could all go, it's not been easy and it's hard on the hospitality industry. And yes, it has been, but it's been hard on every industry and it's been hard on, you know, everyone. So we're just, we're just really pleased that we've still got a business and that, you know, we're still we're still trading, and people are still, you know, keen to come and eat some home slice in the restaurants, and we're really pleased about that. And um, you know, there's a question here: Will home slice be available in rural Somerset? It it will be. We we are trying to get it to the point where it, you know our take and bake pizzas and these delicious new sauces. We're just going to Donald Trump it again there. Um, uh, will be available nationwide. Very very. So if you just keep an eye on the website and our social channels, we will be keeping up. And, and as a man who's um, almost freakishly fit at 50, mm-hmm. how many slices of pizza are you allowed a week? I invariably will eat pizza two to three times a week. And, it, you know, and the fact is, I, you know, it's difficult because I actually still enjoy it. So eight years later, um, I'm still kind of like craving it. But... Um, but, you know, it's very important that we keep an eye on, on the standard of what we're doing. So if I'm, if, you know, if I'm not eating it, then I'm not keeping an eye on it. And, um, you know, I just work that into, into how I live. It's like, you know, if, if, I, if I eat some pizza in Shoreditch, I know I've got to cycle to Marlborough much, much faster. You know, justify it. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Mark, it's really great to catch up with you. Um, congratulations on your sources. Well done, for the fact that Home Slice still has a pulse and uh, really hats off to that terrific hairstyle. Um, it's uh, an, inspiration, an inspiration to everybody. <laughs> Thanks, William. Good to well, see you. Thanks for joining us on Biting Talk. Good to see you. Bye. There we go. Three, three slices of pizza a week. And the show ends on a high with the biting talk mixologist Farhad Haydari. His two-minute cocktail is a very snazzy clubland cocktail. It's great to be back on Biting Talk with you again, William. This week's cocktail is the Clubland, and it's from Bill Tarling's 1937 Café Royale cocktail book, The Coronation Edition. It's a beautiful host prandial, which you can also enjoy before dinner, consisting of three really simple ingredients. It starts with Kettle One Vodka, or any kind of really good vodka. 45 milliliters of that go into a glass stirrer. 
to be joined by 45 milliliters of dry white port. Add a dash of Angostura or other aromatic bitters and stir all the ingredients with ice and fine strain it into a chilled coupe. And then you're gonna garnish that with orange zest and then add a twist of it into the drink. It's a brilliant, delicious grown-up cocktail that many people will enjoy. And that is this week's two-minute cocktail on Biting Talk, William, although we made it in one. <laughs> Farhad Heydari um, there in the House of Heydari Mixologist Studio. Um, if you're looking for something slightly softer, not quite as punchy, I do recommend the Terrain Sauvignon 2018. It's a generous, dry, crisp. It's my favourite Sauvignon Blanc that I've tasted so far this year. It's £13.50. It's on williamshousewines.com. Um, I really thoroughly recommend it. My thanks, of course, to Farhad Heydari, to Tommy Banks, to Beverly Joyner and to Mark Wogan. This podcast was produced by Frontier. To find out more, please visit frontierpodcasts.com. Please do subscribe to Biting Talk. Please do. And uh, rate us. Give us five stars. And I'll see you very soon on Biting Talk. Biting Talk.